take your Bible and turn with me to 2 Samuel chapter 19. 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you're looking in the Pew Bible, you should find it on page 345. 2 Samuel chapter 19. If you have ever um, broken a bone or suffered any kind of injury or had surgery or anything like that, you know how important it is that you give your body time to recover from that. When your body is healing, it is often more susceptible to further injury. So the doctor will often advise you about certain precaution, precautions you should take. Like he may tell you not to lift you know, more than a certain amount of weight or not to move a certain way. And all that's for the sake of, of healing and recovery. At this point in the story of 2 Samuel, the nation of Israel has just endured a traumatic injury, so to speak. Uh, David's own son, Absalom, led a widespread rebellion against him. It culminated in a deadly battle in which 20,000 Israelites died, including David's son, Absalom. So on the one hand, the rebellion has been stopped. The, the cancer has been cut out. The bone has been set back in joint, whatever analogy you want to use for that. But Israel is still fragile and unstable, and at a, they are susceptible to fracturing again. The question remains about whether the entire nation will welcome David back as their king. If they do, what process will that take? How will this fracture be healed? Those are the questions that our passage addresses today. So let's read together in 2 Samuel 19. We're going to pick up sort of right at the end of verse 8, where it says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Verse 9 begins, And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines, and now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom, whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar, the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, Why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house, when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and flesh? God, do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shemai the son of Gerah the Benjaminite from Bahurim hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin, and Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his fifteen sons and his twenty servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shemai, the son of Gerah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan, and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty, or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shammai be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? 
But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king, but my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king, but you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, eighty years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mahanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste, taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king re repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant Himham. Let him go over with my lord the king and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Kimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over, and the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him, and he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Kimham went on with him. All the people of Judah and also half the people of Israel brought the king on his way. Then all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan? And all David's men with him, all the men of Judah, answered the men of Israel, Because the king is our close relative. Why then are you angry over this matter? Have we eaten at all at the king's expense, or has he given us any gift? And the men of Israel answered the men of Judah, We have ten shares in the king, and in David also we have more than you. Why then did you despise us? Were we not the first to speak of bringing back our king? But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. We'll stop there and let's pray together. Lord, we are thankful for Your Word. And God, we confess that sometimes we uh, need a little bit of help in making sense of it, what it says to us about You and about ourselves. And so God, help us today, we pray by Your Spirit, Lord, that we would not merely hear this as a story about uh, squabbling between some tribes uh, 3,000 years ago. But Lord, that we would hear this as a word from you to your church. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Now there is, I wanted to read that whole passage to give you the sense of all that's going on here. 
and also to help you feel how I felt when I really started to dive into this text, which was bewildered about what in the world to make of all this. One of the first things that helped me is when I realized that the author is not telling us this story in chronological order. What I, what I mean is, when you look at the section in verses 24 through 30, when he describes David's encounter with Mephibosheth, he says that he had that encounter when he came to Jerusalem. Then when you go back to Barzillai and the rest of the story, David is far away from Jerusalem. He doesn't actually arrive in Jerusalem until chapter 20. So the author is telling us things out of order. And he has a reason for that. Obviously, the Holy Spirit has a reason for that. And so that, that's going to help us maybe ask, well, why did the Holy Spirit see fit to have whoever it is wrote this book arrange it in this particular way? And so there is some method to the madness. And I want us to notice how the Holy Spirit inspired the author to structure this part of the story because it's going to help us understand what he's saying about David and about God's kingdom, which is going to help us make sense of what this story has to do with Jesus and with us. So here is the basic structure um, of the story. There is some symmetry to it. Verses 9 through 15, we hear about this division between Israel and Judah, them trying to figure out who's going to bring David back and how all that's going to work out. And then if you look down at verses 41 and 43, the same argument's taking place there. They're, they're, they're um, arguing with one another and, and disputing over this. Then in the middle of those three, uh, in, in the middle of those two disputes, you have these three encounters where David uh, meets with Shammai, and then with Mephibosheth, and then Barzillai. And so those three encounters that he has are, are bookended by these two scenes where Israel and Judah are at each other's throats. Now before we go any further, I want to make sure that we all understand who is being referred to when we talk about Israel and Judah. So the, the division between Israel and Judah, who are those two groups of people? Well, in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel was made up of 12 distinct tribes. One of those tribes was called Judah. That's the tribe from which David came. So David, that's his, those are his relatives. Uh, that's his family. He's from the tribe of Judah. So here there is a division between that one tribe, Judah, and the other 11. So in this passage... When it refers to Judah, it's referring to that one tribe, the tribe of David. And when it refers to Israel, it's referring to the other 11 tribes besides Judah. Verse 9 says that all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel. That's a good way to introduce the story. They're arguing, and the dispute was about whether they were going to restore David as king now that Absalom is dead. They say, listen, David is the one who delivered us from the hand of our enemies. He saved us from the Philistines, but now he has fled from Absalom. But now Absalom's dead, so what do we do? David specifically sends word to the leaders of the tribe of Judah. Notice verse 12. This is David speaking to the leaders of Judah. He says, you are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. So remember, David is from the tribe of Judah. You are my brothers, you are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? Now, what's David doing? He knows that all of the 
leaders who were strategic in the rebellion were from his own tribe, from Judah. Absalom was from the tribe of Judah. Amasa, his commander, was from the tribe of Judah. Ahithophel, his advisor, was from the tribe of Judah. So all of these, the rebellion came out of David's own household. And so he sees a special need to reconcile himself to this particular tribe. And he succeeds. Verse 14 says, And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king, Return both you and all your servants. So, and they all lived happily ever after. Not quite. Because when you get to the end of the chapter, after these three encounters, the author lets us in on the fact that the other tribes were not happy about what David did. That they perceived him as being partial to his own tribe. Look down with me at verse 41. Then all the men of Israel, so this is now those other eleven tribes, all the men of Israel came to the king and said to the king, Why have our brothers, the men of Judah, stolen you away and brought the king and his household over the Jordan and all David's men with him? Now, David is certainly not a perfect king. And depending on how you read this, you could read it and say, well, maybe David made a political error. He you know, unintentionally drove a wedge between Judah and the other 11 tribes. But we also at least have to acknowledge that this is certainly a sinful response on the part of Israel, that they respond this way when David is attempting to reunite the nation. Judah is no better. The end of verse 43 says, But the words of the men of Judah were fiercer than the words of the men of Israel. So Israel is easily offended, and they pitch a fit because of what David did. Judah also responds sinfully by being overly harsh with the rest of the tribes of Israel. The point is there's plenty of blame to go around. In those two bookends, we see the imperfect character of the kingdom over which David reigned. So what those two bookends say to us is that David is a king who is trying to wrangle a sinful people. And uh, so we see how imperfect Israel is. All twelve tribes respond sinfully. They agitate the already existent wounds. And then in between those bookends and these three encounters we see something about David's character. So I want us now, we've seen Israel and Judah respond sinfully to David's attempts to reconcile and reunite the nation. And now let's look at those three encounters in between and see what we can detect about David's character. So with each of these, I'm going to give us kind of one phrase to summarize what the author is showing us about David's character. So the first encounter is with a man named Shammai. We see that in verses 16 through 23. And in this scene between David and Shammai, we see David act with insincere mercy. Insincere mercy. All right, now let me show you how I see that in the text. Back in chapter 16, when David was fleeing because of Absalom's rebellion... Shammai, this man that he encounters here again in chapter 19, Shammai met him along the way and cursed him. And he didn't, it wasn't just like a, a, an easy curse if there is such a thing. It wasn't, hey, I curse you, David. It was, he unleashed this torrent. He's calling down curses from heaven against David. Here in chapter 19, 
Shammai comes to David as he's coming back over the Jordan River, back into the Promised Land, and he asks forgiveness. Look at the middle of verse 18. Middle of verse 18. And Shammai the son of Gera fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. That sounds good, right? He even says at the beginning of verse 20, For your servant knows that I have sinned. So, so far, everything Shammai says sounds good. Please don't hold me guilty. Please don't remember how I did wrong to you on the day when you left Jerusalem. Don't take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. But then we catch a whiff of something foul in Shammai's words. Look at the middle of verse 20. He keeps talking. He doesn't stop. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Now when he says, the first of all the house of Joseph, he's referring to the other eleven tribes besides Judah. He's saying to David, look, I want you to notice that I'm the first of any of those other people to come down and meet you. So as soon as he points that out, we still don't quite know what to make of Shammai, but there's reason to doubt the purity of his motives. Because on the one hand, he's saying... I'm sorry, please don't hold me guilty, I have sinned against you. And on the other hand, he's following that up with, now, when you get back to Jerusalem and you're needing advisors and people, just remember that I was the first one to come to you on this day. So how sincerely can David take Shammai's seeming repentance when he immediately follows it up with a not-so-veiled request for special treatment? He's asking David for a job. So this is a man motivated more by politics than by genuine repentance. Nevertheless, look at verse 23. And the king said to Shammai, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. Now, I titled this scene, Insincere Mercy. And you might be thinking, Matt, it seems like you should have called this insincere repentance or insincere confession because Shammai is the one who is insincere. But David is not entirely sincere either. And how do I know that? because of something that happens later. So you can write this down if you want and go look at it some other time. 1 Kings chapter 2. When David is on his deathbed, he gives Solomon, his son, some instructions about what he is to do when he becomes king. And on his deathbed, David singles out a few different people. One of the people that he singles out is Shammai. And I want you to hear what David says to Solomon in 1 Kings 2. This is David on his deathbed, one of his last words to his son before he dies. Speaking of Shammai, Now therefore do not hold him guiltless, for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him, and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. In other words... Solomon, after I'm dead, I want you to kill Shammai. He's passing the buck. He leaves it to Solomon to deal with a man that he still deems untrustworthy. So when you see David in 2 Samuel 19 say to Shammai, you shall not die, and he gives him his oath, well, technically, technically in David's lifetime, he kept that oath. 
but he still deems Shammai to be untrustworthy, and he still has intentions, apparently, of having him killed after he's dead. He just doesn't want to have to do it. He wants to let Solomon do it. So Shammai's repentance is insincere, but so is David's mercy. All right, the next encounter David has is with Mephibosheth. We see this in verses 24 through 30. And here we see David act with imperfect justice. And this is a little bit easier to see within 2 Samuel itself. Imperfect justice. So I, I put here on the screen just to help us make, you know, kind of keep in mind who Mephibosheth is, and you also need to know who Ziba is. So in uh, Mephibosheth is, is the disabled son of David's friend Jonathan. <clears throat> Before Jonathan died, uh, he and David made an oath, and David swore that he would protect and take care of any of Jonathan's children after him. And so earlier in the book of 2 Samuel, David had an opportunity to do that. He, he learns about Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, who was lame, and he says, yes, I want you to go and call for him. I want him to come to me. And David tells Mephibosheth, I want you to come and live with me, and I'm going to treat you as if you are my very own son. So David shows this great kindness to Mephibosheth. Now fast forward a little bit to 2 Samuel 16, when David is fleeing Jerusalem because of Absalom's rebellion. Mephibosheth has a servant named Ziba who lies to David and tells David that Mephibosheth is not coming with you to exile. He wants to stay in Jerusalem because he sees an opportunity to rise to power. Mephibosheth thinks if he stays in Jerusalem, then maybe the people of Israel will say, really, Mephibosheth is the rightful king because he's the grandson of Saul. Now here in 2 Samuel 19, the author fast-forwards to when David gets back to Jerusalem and tells us about this encounter he has with Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth sets the record straight. He says in verse 26, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, in other words, I said to Ziba, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king, for your servant is lame. So Mephibosheth is reminding David, listen David, I can't, you know, I, it was not an easy journey for me. I was trying to saddle a donkey so that I could go with you. But then he says in verse 27, He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. In other words, Ziba lied to you. He slandered me and lied to you when he told you that I was unwilling to come to you. In fact, verse 24 verifies Mephibosheth's version of the story because we could read that and say, well, how are we really to believe Mephibosheth? The author tells us in verse 24 that Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day he came back in safety. That's a way of telling us that Mephibosheth was in open, visible mourning, which was risky for him. Because this is a time when Absalom was king. And here's a guy within the king's court who is walking around mourning the fact that the real and rightful king is not there. So when Mephibosheth shows up, or when David shows back up in Jerusalem and they have this encounter, and he sees, man, Mephibosheth, you have not cut your hair. You haven't trimmed your toenails. It doesn't look like you've taken a bath the whole time or changed your clothes the whole time I've been gone. It's this visible sign to David that what he says is right, that he has remained absolutely loyal and faithful to David. So David thought that Mephibosheth had been disloyal. It turns out he had been faithful all along. 
Now, how does David respond to this realization? David is in a really tricky spot now because in chapter 16, when he thought Mephibosheth was disloyal, what did David do? He said to Ziba, the servant who lied, he said, okay, I give you all of Mephibosheth's inheritance. So David gave all of Mephibosheth's inheritance to Ziba because he thought Mephibosheth was disloyal. Now, Mephibosheth, he realizes what has happened. And what does David do? He says in verse 29, I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. In other words, David splits the inheritance between the two men. Now, you can try to put lipstick on that pig if you want, but it just does not pass muster, does it? Ziba was a powerful man. The author hints at that when he tells us about all the servants he had and all the sons he had. Ziba, although he had once been just a, a servant to Mephibosheth, he is at this point in time a very powerful man within the nation of Israel. And David doesn't feel that he can afford to upset this powerful man at this precarious moment in history. But the fact of the matter is, Ziba ought to have absolutely no claim to Mephibosheth's inheritance. And David has absolutely no business giving it to Ziba. Ziba only possessed it because of his deception, because he slandered Mephibosheth and because he lied to the king. Mephibosheth is the rightful heir. And this is not just about land. In the Old Testament, land was more than just land. Land was a visible representation of an Israelite's portion in the covenant that God had made with His people. There are grave consequences that are laid out for someone who defrauds someone out of their land because they are defrauding someone out of their portion in the, in the inheritance that God had given to every Israelite. Mephibosheth is the rightful heir to this inheritance. And for David to split the land between these two men is not just for David to do an economic injustice to Mephibosheth, but it is for David to blatantly disregard the law of God, the Word of God, the covenant that God had made with His people, Israel. Now, Mephibosheth, on the other hand, shows the loyalty of his character when he responds to David in verse 30, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. So Mephibosheth is, is really the only person in this story who shows himself to have uh, good character. But no matter which way you cut it, what David did was unjust. So we see him act with insincere mercy. We see him act with imperfect justice. And then the third encounter he has is with a man named Barzillai. We see that in verses 31 through 40. And in that encounter we see David acting with faithful kindness. Faithful kindness. This is the, the best encounter that David comes away from. So before the showdown between David's men and Absalom's army, Barzillai showed kindness to David by sustaining him. He sent supplies to refresh David and his men. 
now in chapter 19, David has an opportunity to return his kindness. And so he invites Barzillai to return with me to Jerusalem and you can live with me. And basically, it's a you know, golden ticket to live in the king's house and eat the king's food the rest of your life. Barzillai politely declines. I mean, basically his reasoning is, I'm an old man. Uh, I don't really want to go that far when I'm not going to be able to enjoy it very long anyways. I'd rather just go home and die in peace in my own home. But he, he, he says instead, would you take Kimham, who is Barzillai's son? So Barzillai's son is going to go in his place to go and live with David and be treated as if he were David's own son. Again, in 1 Kings 2, Barzillai is one of the men that David singles out when he's giving instructions to Solomon. And he tells Solomon to deal loyally with the sons of Barzillai the Gileadite and let them be among those who eat at your table. For with such loyalty they met me when I fled from Absalom your brother. In other words, David, after he dies, he wants Solomon to kill Shammai because he was unwilling to do that while he was alive. On the other hand, he wants Solomon to show kindness uh, and to deal loyally with Barzillai's sons because he wants this kindness to go on even after he's dead. So the picture, when you kind of put all these puzzle pieces together, the picture you get both of Israel and of David is a mixed bag. On the one hand, the nation seems ready to welcome David back as their king. On the other hand, they bicker about how to do it and they, they speak harshly uh, to one another. And uh, the, uh, the divisions that we see in chapter 19 here are never fully going to be healed. There, there is a, a fracture that has taken place here that is never going to be put back together uh, until the Messiah comes. So on the one hand, the nation seems ready to welcome David back as their king. On the other hand, they bicker about how to do it. And then as for David, on the one hand, he acts with mercy, but it's insincere mercy. He acts with imperfect justice. He's kind of trying to make everybody happy and he ends up displeasing God. And he also acts with faithful kindness, not only in this moment, but also even after he's dead, he's ensuring that Barzillai's family is going to be taken care of and dealt loyally with. And so the picture then is you have Israel, who is a flawed kingdom with a flawed king. How in the world does that relate to us? Because again, we could look at this and say, okay, yeah, all these people were messed up. You know, they, they, they did some good things, but they also did some awful things. How, how does that relate to us? The answer is that in the Old Testament, the nation of Israel is the visible representation of the people of God. Not everyone in Israel is really uh, born again. But the nation of Israel is the visible representation of God's people. In the New Testament era, the visible representation of God's people is not a specific nation or ethnic group. It is the church. And again, not everyone who is in the church is necessarily born again. Just because someone is uh, a member of a church or an attender at a church doesn't mean that they are necessarily born again. But the church is the visible representation of the kingdom of God, of the people of God in the era of the New Testament. So in 2 Samuel 19, Israel was still awaiting the arrival of God's perfect king. From our vantage point in history, that king has come. His name is Jesus, but his church is still imperfect. So Old Testament Israel was a flawed kingdom with a flawed king. The New Testament church is a flawed people with flawed leaders, but a flawless king. We have a perfect king. 
And yet we are still an imperfect people. Now, we could kind of walk away and say, okay, well, that's, that's good. There's our application. But we, I don't want us to kind of walk away and just uh, say, okay, well, we're imperfect. Because sometimes when we use that word, we're imperfect, we sort of treat that as a license to sin. Say, well, we're, we're imperfect and we're, we're going to be imperfect until Jesus comes back. So we just kind of shrug and say, well, oh well. But as God's people, He calls us to reflect His holy character. He calls us to depict His faithfulness, His loyalty, His holiness, His kindness to the world around us. And so I want us to think of these different encounters, these different scenes here in 2 Samuel 19 and to see what are some ways we might be encouraged and warned about how God expects His people to live in the world. I've got four suggestions for us. So first, God's people should be unconcerned with prominence. God's people should be unconcerned with prominence. That was Shammai's problem, wasn't it? He was more concerned with having his proper place than in truly loving David or loving the Lord. He wanted to get his. Unfortunately, there are still Shammai's in the church today. God warns us about them. Third John describes this person in the church named Diotrephes. He says, I have written something to the church, but Diotrephes, who likes to put himself first, does not acknowledge our authority. So because of his desire for prominence, because, as he puts it, he likes to put himself first, Diotrephes refused to listen to those who were preaching God's Word. He wanted to maintain the influence for himself. He wanted to be prominent, just like Shammai did. And so let us all be warned by Diotrephes and by Shammai that God expects His people to be more concerned with repentance than with prominence. Second, God's people should be content with their inheritance in Christ. God's people should be content with their inheritance in Christ. Zeba robbed Mephibosheth of what rightly belonged to him, and David failed to do what was just. Here's the good news for us. If you are in Christ, you have a better inheritance than Mephibosheth, and you have a better king than David. 1 Peter 1 describes our inheritance. Blessed be the Lord, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. So if you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, then you've been born again to an inheritance. That means that you are in the family of God and God. God intends to give you an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. There are no Zebas who can sneak in and steal it, whether by deception or any other means. Our eternal inheritance is imperishable and kept in heaven for us. And so because of that, we can have the same kind of contentment as Mephibosheth. In fact, we should be even more content than Mephibosheth who said, Oh, let him take it all since my Lord the King has come safely home. If Zeba wants to, to try to rob me of my earthly inheritance, he can have it because David is the King. And we should be able to say, There is no one who can rob us of our eternal inheritance. And so we're going to rejoice and be content because Jesus is King. You can have all this world, but give me Jesus. 
So God's people should be unconcerned with prominence, content with their inheritance in Christ. Third, God's people should be zealous for tangible, sacrificial kindness. We should be zealous for tangible, sacrificial kindness. We see that in this encounter between David and Barzillai. Barzillai is a man who stood by David when it was unpopular, when it was downright risky. Everyone else around him were siding with Absalom, but Barzillai knew David is the Lord's anointed. And so at great risk to himself and at great expense to himself, he showed kindness to David and he stood by him and was loyal to him. David now returns that kindness to him, even ensuring that it extends beyond his lifetime. And if that kind of tangible kindness characterized Barzillai and David, how much, more should it be, how, how much more should it characterize the church of Jesus Christ? The greatest gift has been given for us. The greatest sacrifice has been made for our sake. So how then can we not be exceedingly kind to one another and to the world around us? This is not just uh, Mr. Rogers Okay, this is Scripture. The fruit of the Spirit, among other things, is kindness, goodness, faithfulness, and gentleness. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. So if we are God's people, then we should be unconcerned with prominence. We should be content with our inheritance in Christ. We should be zealous for tangible, sacrificial kindness, which means we don't just sit around and wait for it to fall in our lap, but we go looking for it. And then fourth, God God's people should be eager to maintain spirit-filled unity. God's people should be eager to maintain spirit-filled unity. One truth that we can see in 2 Samuel 19 is how ugly it is and how dishonoring to God it is when God's people are divided against one another. And the New Testament speaks even clear, more clearly and repeatedly about the goodness of Christ-centered, Spirit-filled unity and about the destruction that comes from sinful divisiveness. Ephesians 4 says that divisiveness in the church grieves the Holy Spirit. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Some of the harshest language in the New Testament is reserved for divisiveness in the church. Titus 3, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. And of all the things that Jesus could have prayed for the church, He asked that the Father would unify His people, John 17, that they may become perfectly one so that the world may know that You sent Me and loved them even as You loved Me. Divisiveness dishonors God and hinders the witness of His church. And so for Christ's sake, may God so fill us with His Spirit that we will... As Paul says in Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which we have been called with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace.
We're going to sing a hymn of invitation in just a moment. This is our opportunity to respond to God's Word. Paul told the Corinthians that, uh, that the things God had said in the past were not just for our ancestors. He was talking about the Old Testament. He said these are for us. That God is warning us. And so when we read the Old Testament and we see how sinful <clears throat> Israel was and we see how sinful their king was, we're reminded that we have a perfect king, unlike Israel, one who laid down his own life, one who was absolutely sinless, who laid down his own life in our place, and whom God raised from the dead so that we can have a guarantee that if we trust in Him, He will pardon and forgive us. And yet we also are, are warned about the dangers of continuing and abiding in sinfulness. And so uh, this is our opportunity to respond to God's Word by looking to Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, by seeing the abundance of His mercy for us, and also by, uh, by hating our sin and repenting of it and confessing it openly to Him. So let's do that now. Lord, we thank You for Your holiness and Your mercy. God, we thank You, Lord, that You have in Your wisdom sent us a perfect King in Your goodness that You have made a way for us to be reconciled to You. And God, that You call us uh, to be your ambassadors here in the world, that you have left us here, God, so that we will know and that the world will know that you love us and that you sent your Son for us. God, I pray um, that you would help each one of us right now in this moment, Lord, not to be thinking about anyone else's sin but our own. Not to be thinking about anyone else's righteousness but Christ's. And God, that we would come to You, as Paul says, in humility. Lord, that we would be eager to confess our sin to You and to find mercy and holiness in You. And we pray all this in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Let's stand and sing together. Number two.